take that Bible in your row home, we would be absolutely delighted for it to get used throughout the week. By way of reminder, um, over the last uh, four days of Luke's gospel, so the last four days of the life of Jesus, we've been actually studying this section for months and months, but it's only been about a four-day span, Christ has been arrested, beaten, condemned, crucified, buried, and resurrected. And through all of it, our Lord's disciples have been on an emotional roller coaster, hitting some terrible lows and some extremely high highs. And now the Lord Jesus is preparing to ascend back to the Father. He's going to ascend back to heaven. As Lord willing, we will see next week when we conclude, after almost five years, conclude our study of Luke's gospel. But today, he's going to speak the last words that Luke records from his lips. And they're not words of cordial greeting or, or, or comfort. They are a challenge. As our Lord is going to commission these disciples and us to spend our lives doing the work of making disciples. This is the Christian's homework. I know how much our flesh hates homework. And so before I read the text, I want to pray that God would help us. God in heaven, uh, we love to look at what you've done for us in the gospel. But we cannot say for most of us that we have the same joy in looking at what you have called us to do for you especially in the Great Commission, as you have called us to be disciple-makers. I pray that you would subdue our pride, you would eliminate our excuses, and you would give us a heart that is humble and teachable, ready to say to you, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 24, starting at verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer And on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In seminary, we take a, a series of classes known as homiletics. Homiletics means of or having to do with sermons. And so in homiletics class, they teach us, of course, how to deliver sermons, and they, they, they tell us what to do and what not to do when we're in the pulpit. But they also spend a lot of time teaching us how to prepare and how to structure our sermons. How should a sermon be shaped? is part of what homiletics aims to teach us. At the most basic level, 
there's three main things that homiletics teach us about the structure of a sermon that work we really need to cover three things first observation what does the text say and then interpretation what does it mean and then application what do i do with it or to say it another way this is jeff back reminded me of this what so what and now what and for the last 24 chapters luke has been answering the what and the so what question the what is simply that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to earth. He was mighty in word and deed. He fulfilled the scriptures. He died a martyr's death, and he was raised on the third day. Luke has been laying that out for us. He has told us that in dozens of different ways over the last 24 chapters. That's the what. That's the substance of the gospel. Now, the so what is that through his faith, uh, through faith, in his sinless life and his atoning death, and only by virtue of those things, our sins can be forgiven, our relationship with God can be restored, and we can live our lives in fellowship with him. That's the so what. That's, the, that's why the what matters. But before Luke wraps up this great gospel, he wants to give us the now what. Now what? How should the what and the so what that, that many of us have been studying since late 2017, how should the what and the so what give shape to my life from now on? In the application, we're given the now what. We're given the marching orders. We're, we're being told here to weigh the cost. Do we really believe Jesus paid it all? Yes, all to him I owe. That's where the rubber meets the road. We're going to be told to count the cost today because Jesus' marching orders are going to make us decide, is he worthy of what he's asked of me? Is he worthy? Well, what is it? What's the now what that he's asked of us? Now Go and make disciples of all nations by the power of the Spirit. That's the now what to you people who have heard almost 200 sermons from Luke's gospel, who are probably among the people on the face of the earth, probably some of the best trained experts in Luke's gospel at this point, simply by virtue of the fact that you've been studying it for almost five years. What is God calling you to do Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations by the power of the Spirit. That's your now what. Those are your marching orders. And I want you to see that under three headings here today. First, we're going to look at the mission of the church. Second, we're going to look at the manpower for the mission. And third, we're going to look at the motivation. So the mission, the manpower, the motivation. What's the mission of the church? Well, it's interesting how Jesus begins here. He, he doesn't start by saying, now go and do. Jesus starts by reminding them, look what I've done. That's gospel grammar. Indicatives always come before imperatives. It's because of what Jesus did 
that we go and do. And so Christ, once again, in verse 44, opens to them the Scriptures. He says, These are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When Jesus speaks of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's Jewish shorthand for the whole Old Testament. Every word of Scripture. Now that should be no surprise to the disciples because every time Jesus encounters them in his resurrected state, he opens the scriptures to them. We saw it just a couple of weeks ago as he opened the scriptures to the men, uh, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it's really important that we understand why Jesus is constantly drawing them back to the scriptures. He doesn't say to them, look at this cool resurrection body that I have. He looks to the Scriptures, and the reason is soon he'll be ascended. Soon he will no longer physically, fleshly be in their presence. He'll be at the right hand of God, but he'll send his Spirit. And it's through his Spirit that he will meet with his people, particularly as we seek him in the Scriptures. And so he opens the pages of the Scriptures to them once again, and he says, look at the pages of Scripture. From, in this case, Genesis to Malachi, because they didn't yet have the New Testament, but from Genesis to Malachi, he says, the Scriptures point to me. Now, he could have taken them to Genesis 3 to talk about the seed of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent. He could have taken them to Genesis 22 to see the, the, the ram in the thicket that was provided in exchange for Isaac. He could have taken them to Exodus 12 to see the Passover lamb. In fact, he could have taken them to any of the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice passages of the Old Testament. Literally, Jesus could have taken them to any page of the Old Testament and explained to them, you see me? You see my ministry right here? That's what this is teaching you. In, in one line here, Jesus is giving us the cliffs notes for all 23,145 Old Testament verses. Look at verse 46. Here's how Jesus summarizes the whole Old Testament. He says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. And you and I could spend the rest of the day just parsing out those truths from the Old Testament. Jesus here says, that's the substance of the scriptures, my gospel. That's what we mean. You hear me, you hear Pastor Walton, you hear others talk about the gospel a lot. And when we say the gospel, we're not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're talking about this whole story that God became flesh, lived a perfect life, dwelt among men, was crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected, all for the forgiveness of sins. Christ is saying to him here, that's what the Old Testament is all about. That's what the substance of your religion is. He's saying to these, these Jewish believers, and that's a really important point because the Jewish, uh, many of the Jews had gotten this wrong. They had thought that the message of the Old Testament was something like this, ending political oppression. Or it was about earning salvation. Or it was about displaying racial superiority. If you were to ask the Pharisees, 
what they believed their religion was about, what, what is the mission of your religion, they would have said those things. You know, the same is true today, isn't it? People who are steeped in the Scriptures can absolutely miss the point of them. They, they may know every word and absolutely miss the gospel. I studied under undergraduate professors in a very liberal Christian school, and they knew the Scriptures better than I probably will before the day, till the day I die. And yet they did not understand that the substance of the Scriptures was the gospel of Jesus Christ. So people will say today, the mission of the church is cultural transformation. The mission of the church is racial reconciliation. The mission of the church is to feed the poor. You know, those may be byproducts of what the church accomplishes in the world, but none of those things is the mission of the church. Jesus is saying here, the mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel. Look at verse 47. He tells us what to do here. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. He's saying, church, here's your marching orders. Go forth with the gospel. He's given them their commission. You're to be gospel preachers on every street corner, in every city, all over the face of the earth. Preach the gospel. Call people to turn from their sins and turn to Christ. Now, sometimes churches have understood that to mean that the mission of the church is simply to make converts, to get people saved. I want you to look at Matthew's version of the Great Commission for a moment. I have no doubt that in Jesus' 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, he probably gave this commission many different times. I think Luke's record of it is different than Matthew's record of it. And I want you to see how Matthew records the Great Commission here. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What do I do with my authority? I'm going to tell you to do this, church. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see, the commission isn't just go get converts. It isn't just to get as many people in the role of the church as possible. The commission is to make disciples. And how does Jesus tell us to do it there? He says first, baptizing them. Baptizing them into what? Baptizing them into the church. Bring them into the life of the church. And then teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That, if, if you want a summary of our missions uh, agenda here at First Scots, it is not to go around the world and do do hit-and-run evangelism. It is to plant churches all over the face of the earth. So you look at the missionaries we support. They are church-planting missionaries because we're not just trying to score converts. We're trying to follow the Great Commission to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Our mission as a church, is to be a disciple-making church. 
Are we clear on that, beloved? That is the gospel mission for the New Testament church. We are to be disciple makers. We are to bring them into the church, baptizing them, and then teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. There's a lot of other good things the church could do, but this is central to the mission of the church, to be disciple makers. Uh, there's a story, and I think I used this the first time I preached at First Scots, and I've used it half a dozen other times, but it's such an important image for us. There was a lighthouse along a a dark coast, a dangerous rocky coast, and it was tended by a lighthouse keeper, and he was given enough oil for one month at a time. And his duty, his one duty, was to keep the light burning every night so that the ships could see and stay safe. One day a woman came to him and asked for oil for her heater so the children could stay warm. And then a farmer came needed oil for the engine. Another came and needed oil for the lamp so they could read at night. And the keeper saw each of those things as a worthy request. And so he he measured out just enough oil to satisfy all. But then just a couple of days before the end of the month, before he would get a refill, the light went out. And the beacon was dark, and three ships collided into the coast that night, and more than a hundred lives were lost. And when a government official investigated, the, the lighthouse keeper explained what he had done, that everything seemed so worthy. And the government official said, you were given one task alone. It was to keep the light burning. Everything else was secondary. You have no defense. Church, Christ has given us the mission And we have lots of other good things we can do. But the mission of the church is to make disciples. If we abandoned that, we have ceased to obey Christ. So first, that's the mission. Now let's think about the manpower. You know, as Jesus is speaking to this crowd, we don't know exactly how many people were there. Uh, in, In Luke's gospel, this follows immediately after Jesus appearing to the disciples there in Jerusalem, and it tells us that there were the 11 plus a handful of others. Maybe it follows right after. He may have said it at some other point during his resurrection ministry. But regardless, the crowd that he was talking to was not overly large. It certainly wasn't an army big enough to carry the gospel to the nations. And Jesus says to him, your duty here is to go to the ends of the earth. You know, we've, we've had what and so what and now what. And I have to imagine some of them were saying, say what? You want us to go to the nations? You want this tiny band of disciples to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel? Well, Jesus confirms it in verse 48. He says, you are witnesses of these things. In other words, who else is going to do it? You're the ones who've seen it for yourselves, so I'm sending you to tell the world what you've witnessed. Now turn over with me to the book of Acts, and I just want to see if the disciples did what they were called to do. There were a lot of things they didn't get right, weren't there? Look what they were called to do and what they did with it. Look Look at Acts 2 for a moment. Peter's preaching at Pentecost. 
And he says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Well, Peter, where'd you get that language? Because Jesus told me to go do that. He told me, you're witnesses, now go tell people about what has happened. And then you go over to chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus is, is speaking there to the people. He addresses them back in verse 12, men of Israel. He says in verse 15, And you denied the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. The gospel truth that they had seen with their eyes became the motivation for their lives. It became the power for their lives and the structure of their lives. Look over at chapter 10. And Peter just never seemed to get over the resurrection. Acts 10, Peter's at the house of Cornelius, verse 39. We're witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all prophets bear witness. He's saying the exact same thing Jesus has said in his resurrection. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the message of the church. You turn over to verse, chapter 13. I won't wear you out with these. But we could go to place after place after place. Verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 30. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to our fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The disciples understood the mission, make disciples, and they understood they were the manpower for it. Now, that's all good and well. I don't think anybody in here would argue with that. The, 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 the disciples did a phenomenal job of being faithful to this commission. But there's a problem, isn't there? And the problem is that of the original 11, 10 of them would die as martyrs. The 11th would die in exile, and by the end of the first century, all of them would be dead. And if Christ were only commissioning that group to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, the gospel would have come, become extinct by now, wouldn't it? Well, thankfully, the manpower for the mission goes well beyond the apostles. It goes well beyond the early crowd. Who is the manpower? True disciples of Christ. If you say, I am a Christian, if you say, I am a follower of Christ, 
You are saying, I have heard and am prepared to heed the call to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. You are the manpower of the gospel. All who have confessed and believed these things and are witnesses to the truth that you and I would be willing to stake our lives on it. We haven't seen it with our eyes, but we've seen it with our souls. We are the missions. We are the manpower for the mission of the church. And I know a lot of us are apt to to shake our heads yes and nod our hearts no. Because what's happened in the church is that we think the work of sharing the gospel, of gospel proclamation, of going to the ends of the earth, is for the paid professionals, don't we? We'll leave that to you, preacher man. That's why you get paid the big bucks. It's your job, pastor, to carry the gospel to the nations. We'll stand by and support you. You know, if that is our mentality, we're following in the footsteps of pre-Reformation Rome, aren't we? Which taught that there was a strong dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. And if you really wanted to serve God, you've got to go become a nun or a priest. The rest of us, we just have regular vocations. What the Reformation recovered is that whatever your vocation is, part of your duty is to fulfill the Great Commission, Christian. That is your job. If the clergy are the only people tasked with carrying the gospel to the nations, it won't even make it out of Buford. It'll never happen. And so we need to understand that the mission of the church is not for the paid professionals. The mission of the church is you going to the nations with the good news of what you have witnessed in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to to Ephesians 4, because we do need to understand then what the relationship is between the clergy and our calling and you, your calling. We'll actually, Lord willing, pick this back up a little bit next week when we look at at verse 9. Um, and we think about how Jesus has given gifts to the church, and, and he's given gifts to you. But look at verse 11, Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Here's what, what Paul's saying here. As an entity within the leadership of the church, the mission of the church is very narrow. Make disciples in this congregation. Equip you, according to Ephesians 4.11. That's why we love to teach the Word, because we know that it's through the Word that the saints are equipped. But you, disciples of Christ, you have a very broad mission. You take what you learn in the walls of the church, and you apply it to every square inch of Beaufort, to South Carolina, to the United States, and to the world. That's your broad mission. 
And so as you come to church and as you come to Sunday school and you come to the different teaching times that we have as a church, you are gaining tools to then go to the nations with the gospel. That's God's design for the church. We equip you, we disciple you so that you can then go out and make disciples of all nations. I, uh, I know that some of you are apt to think, if I'm not an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, what can I do for the sake of the kingdom? What I would say to you is you live your life and you do it at every turn for the glory of, the, of God as you make disciples. I was on the website of a very large church the other day, and they have more programs than we have people. And they have men's ministry, and they have women's ministry, and they have dance ministry, and weightlifting ministry, and yoga ministry, and I don't know, dog walking ministry. I have no idea. There was a ministry for every hobby under the sun. And it seemed silly to me as I went down the list, and then I started thinking about this text, and the more I thought about it through the lens of this passage, I realized that we as a church have that many ministries. And you're not going to find them on our website. But what we believe is that as you are equipped to do the work of ministry and you go out into your daily life, when you go and you play golf, you now have your mission field. You are the First Scots Golf Ministry. As you have a book club, you are the First Scots Book Club. As you seek to use those fears of your life to make disciples. As you go into the workplace and you look for opportunities to bear witness there, you're a satellite campus of First Scots. And what happens is that those people who would never otherwise darken the door of this church now have the church going to them. You are the ministries of this church. That's why we're not a heavily, heavily program-driven church, because your life is our program. As the gospel sinks deep into the recesses of who you are, and then you go out into the world, it's going to come out of you. You're going to proclaim that truth. You are the manpower for the mission. I was talking with some brothers this week about this passage, and one of them said, you know, mission statements are great, but you know what the problem is with mission statements? The problem with mission statements isn't mission statements itself, but that nobody actually does them. We might stand around and say, that's a really good mission statement. But actually doing it is a completely different matter. Church family, are we being faithful as the manpower for the mission of the church. In Acts 17, there was a complaint that came against the disciples that they were turning the world upside down. Now, we know they were actually turning the world right side up. It was a small army of people that were turning the world upside down. If you look at the number of the apostles in those days, and you look at the size of this church, we're 15 times larger. They turned the world upside down. How much more would God do through us as we willingly yield our lives to be the manpower for the mission of the gospel? I hope what uh, 
a friend, another pastor said recently of his church would not be true of us, and I don't think it is. But he, st- he said, I feel like my church, instead of living out man's chief end, that's a first Shorter Catechism, question one reference, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He said, instead of living out man's chief end, he said, my church won't get off its rear end. I trust that would never be said of us, but are we doing what Christ has commissioned us to do? To be the manpower for the mission of the church. Beloved, when is the last time you shared the gospel with someone intentionally? Told them about Jesus and how to be saved. Talk to them not just about what Jesus did, but about repentance. That's what Jesus commanded here. Talk to them about repentance and forgiveness of sins. When is the last time you did it? Well, I try to just live a really good life in front of them. Good! The gospel should go forth adorned by a good life. But does your good life save sinners? No, not in a million years can your good life save sinners. We must tell them the gospel. Why don't we do it? If we believe that apart from Christ, that all, me, that all who reject him, who have never believed in him, will suffer in eternity, uh, suffer in hell for eternity, why don't we tell people? Well, uh, It's scary. I might botch it. I've never seen it done. I don't want to scare people away. I don't want people to think I'm weird. You know, no matter our excuse, there's only three reasons that I can think of we don't share the gospel. The first is we don't believe it ourselves. And if that's you, let me plead with you. You are not guaranteed tomorrow So if you're thinking, I'll get around to it one day, you are not guaranteed tomorrow. You are guaranteed that one day you will stand before a holy God and give account for your life. So the first possibility is you don't believe it. The second possibility of why we don't share the gospel is that we don't care. And we'd never say that out loud. I don't care if people go to heaven or hell. But functionally, when you and I are more concerned with what people think of us than where we'll spend eternity, what we're really saying to them is, I don't care about the well-being of your soul. And that's a real problem because in the pages of Scripture, we never see true believers who are content to go to heaven alone. They want to tell everybody else about it. The third reason, I think for most of us, that we don't share the gospel is is simply we don't have enough confidence that it'll work. We don't believe in the power of the gospel. We look at people and think they're too far gone, their heart is too hard, they'll never believe. Or we think that we need some perfect method in order to share the gospel, and we're afraid we might get it wrong. You know, Christ addresses that here. Look at verse 49 again. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. What's Christ talking about here? He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming to them in power. It was promised in Luke chapter 3. It was given, the Holy Spirit was given in Acts 2 at Pentecost. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's telling us about the motivation for sharing the gospel, for being the manpower for the mission. This is our third point, motivation. Our motivation to tell others about Christ 
whether it is the other side of the earth or the other side of your street, is that the Holy Spirit is with us, and He makes our words effective in ways that you and I in a million homiletics classes never, ever could. Jesus, by His Spirit, takes our meager, weak efforts and He produces lasting fruit through them. He can raise the dead, spiritually speaking, through your words. And so Christ says, here's your motivation. Here's the way you overcome all your fears and reticence. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you. Yeah, right. The Holy Spirit can take my untrained words and bring sinners to saving faith? Yes, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Look back at just how it's been happening in Luke 24. Jesus has given us two pictures already of this happening. Chapter 24, verse 31. Jesus was on the Emmaus Road with the disciples. They don't recognize him. They're spiritually blind. And in verse 31, it says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. How did their eyes get opened all of a sudden? The Holy Spirit awakened them. And then verse 45, our text today, then he opened their minds to understand the gospel. When Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to be with us, he is telling us that he's going to take our meager, pitiful, ineloquent words and he is going to use them to literally raise the spiritually dead. That's the motivation for this, that the Holy Spirit can do it. If the Holy Spirit were not the one in charge of, uh, of bringing the dead to life, I would never preach the gospel because in a million, billion years, I could not bring the dead to life, but the Holy Spirit can, and he loves to use the weak things of this world to show his power. How did you come to know Christ? Were you just smarter than others, and that's why you got it? You got it if you're a Christian because the Holy Spirit opened your heart to believe, and that motivates us to go and tell others because that same spirit who opened your heart and that same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead can raise them from the dead as well. This is the now what of the Christian life. If you profess to be a Christian, if you've accepted the what and the so what, and you trust in Christ, then your commission, your duty, your marching orders from Jesus are to go and make disciples by the power of the Spirit. That's, that's your duty. God has already given you your mission field. It's wherever you are right now. Your job, your circle of friends, your classmates. He may call some of you to go to the ends of the earth. We'd love to be your sending church if he does. But I am convinced that he has called all of us to go to the end of the street and talk to people about Christ. If you and I want to do the will of our Heavenly Father, we need to heed this commission to make it our life's work to make disciples. I don't know where God is calling you to do that work, but I have no doubt that he is. And it shouldn't be a burden to us, but it is a tremendous privilege. You, you know salespeople who really believe in their product, and you can see it because they love to talk about their product. You've seen people who are so wrapped up in politics that when they find a, a candidate they love, they're willing to go door-to-door -door for that candidate. They don't have to be paid to do it, they volunteer. 
Some of you are grandparents, and you whip out pictures of your grandchildren faster than a Wild West gunslinger because you love to tell of your grandchildren. Beloved, if we love Christ, then it is our great privilege to tell the world the gospel. How do we apply this text? Two quick points of application. First, before we can make disciples, we need to be disciples. 2 Timothy 3. The Apostle Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Why? So that we can be a beautiful museum piece? No, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you want to be a disciple maker, you need to first yourself be a disciple. Second, as individuals, as families, we need to be thinking, what is our mission field? I want to challenge you at the lunch table today. Ask that question, what is our mission field? If you've got children that are playing sports and you spend 15 hours a week sitting in the stands with other parents, you have a mission field that is clearly laid out for you. And you have to stop yelling at the ump if that's the case. But you have your mission field. Uh, students, children, your mission field is to help make disciples in the classroom. Your workplace is your mission field. You've got groups of people, you have a, a supper club, breakfast club, whatever, that you've been meeting with for the last 30 years. Maybe you've never opened your mouth about Christ. They are your mission field. Now is the time to speak to them of the Lord Jesus. Well, I'm just waiting for them to ask me. 30 years of waiting? No, you speak to them. We need to think intentionally as a church and as individuals about what our mission field is and then go and make disciples. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you that not only have you done this mighty work of redeeming a people showing the glory of your grace by making new creations from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But you have chosen to show your glory and your kindness by including us in that work of being disciple makers. We cannot do it in our own strength. We, we, would, we would throw in the towel immediately if it were up to us, but we have this Holy Spirit promise that he will be with us, and he is the one who can make our words effective. God, give us passion and compassion upon our neighbors, that we would yearn for our neighbors, our co-workers, all who are in our spheres of influence,